Well, take a look around the room. What do you see? You see a lot of different things, don't you? You might want to look out the window and see the beautiful snow. Isn't that always nice, fresh snow? That's nice. I like that. A little participation. Make a snowman? That's right. Sounds like you got plans, Nick, after, after church, doing a snowman there. See all the wonderful things in the room, the colors, right? The faces, the things, the objects. You got Bibles and chairs, music stands and fans and so forth. What makes all of these things possible? Light. Well, God, you're right. But we need light, don't we? If we didn't have light, we wouldn't have the ability to see these things. Light is one of those things that we take for granted, isn't it? I mean, we just go about our day all the time and we take in all these things. And we don't really stop very often, do we, to appreciate that if we wouldn't have light, we couldn't see any of these things. And we really don't you know, appreciate light until all of a sudden your power goes out or something. Hopefully nobody lost power last night. But if you lose power, then all of a sudden you, you appreciate how important light is. You say, well, what is light? That's a good question. People have wondered, you know what light is? People have wondered about it for centuries. The ancient Greeks, they actually thought that light wasn't something out there, but that there was actually something that went out of our eyes. Almost kind of like light beams coming out of our eyes and it helped to illuminate the world. Well, we have a little better handle on what light is nowadays, but still remains kind of a mystery. Physicists tell us that it's both light is actually both a wave and a particle, which is very fascinating. They also tell us that light travels at 186,000 miles a second. I didn't say a year, I said a second. So if you travel from San Francisco to New York, you would have to go 62 times in one second. That's how fast light travels in one second. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? So God is the fastest thing in the universe, and God is the source of that. Light, as fascinating and incredible as it is, it is still a created object. God is the source of light. Genesis 1.3 says, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now we know on a common sense level we need light to be able to distinguish it from darkness, but we also know in Scripture that it's a very common metaphor to speak about God. And light is associated with God in some very important and fascinating ways. And so our, for our purposes today, as Adam already has alluded to, Jesus comes along and he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. What does he mean when he says that he is the light of the world? Well, it's a great statement. We're going to dig into what he actually means by that this morning. And also, what his being the light of the world has to do and the implications for you and I, which are really significant. So, let me uh, remind us again that we are in the midst of our series on the Gospel of John. We're in the second of these I Am statements where Jesus 
says, I am, fill in the blank. Last week we saw that Jesus was what? I am the, the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Seven of these statements. And each of these statements highlights how Jesus is, His relationship with us, His great salvation, and what we experience with Him. And we know the number seven symbolizes fullness and completeness. And I think John picked out these seven statements to really give a message to the readers here about the fullness of the relationship that you and I have with our Savior. Really rich and practical ways that we get to explore this relationship that we have with Jesus. And today we're going to look at I am the light of the world. So please turn to John chapter 8. Page 894, John chapter 8. And as you're turning there, just a context setter, chapter 7 and 8 in John are all, really, all one unit. It's all talking about the time when Jesus traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Feast of Tabernacles. That was one of the three great annual festivals that the Jews would celebrate along with Passover and Pentecost. Tabernacles was celebrated sometime between mid-September and mid-October to commemorate the time when their ancestors were in the wilderness. This was what this commemorated before coming into the promised land. It was an eight-day feast, and we know from John 7 that this was the last day of the feast. So Jesus As is no surprise, him and the religious leaders are at odds with one another. And so then we come to John chapter 8, verse 12. Everybody there? All right, let's read it. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So right from the start, Jesus declares that he is the light of the world. And he's connecting to, as I said, this very rich biblical theme about God and light. And and it really deserves our attention to focus on what does Scripture say about God and light so that we can really unpack the fullness of what Jesus is trying to say here. And there's three points that I want to bring out here. And I hope that you see how Jesus is fulfillment of all these things. First thing is this. Light reveals God's presence. Light reveals God's presence. Now, God Himself is not light. We know that from John chapter 4.24, that God is spirit. God is spirit. Yet He manifests His presence with light. Everybody got that? So He manifests His presence with light. He radiates light. Psalm 104 verse 2 says, You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. And so we read several times in the Old Testament when God manifests His presence to His people, it's evidenced by light. For example, we just mentioned the the Feast of the Tabernacles when the Jews were wandering in the wilderness. You remember how God led them in the wilderness. How He led them with this pillar of cloud by day, right? And also at night, he led them by a pillar of fire. So the light in both instances symbolized the presence of God. It indicated the presence of God. You say, well, what about Jesus? What about Jesus? 
Well, we know that Jesus is fully God who became man, so he veiled his deity, didn't he? So in a sense, he did kind of clothe that brilliance and that radiance so that he could be fully man. It would be hard to be fully man while his, during his incarnation and displaying his glory and his radiance, right? People would have been overwhelmed all the time. But there are a few occasions when Jesus, in a sense, pulls back the veil and shows who he is in his glory. Remember that time when he took James, Peter, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus revealed his deity to them, his glory. It says in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, Jesus was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So friends, it wasn't somehow that his clothes turned into different colors, but that he revealed his glory and his clothes became illuminated by the incredible brilliance of who Jesus is. After his resurrection and then when he ascended to glory, Paul meets the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Acts 9.3 says, Now as Paul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He was knocked off his horse by this light. Revelation 1, John has a similar vision of the risen and glorified Christ and all this brilliance. How about this one? Revelation 21 talks about that in the new creation, God and Christ will illuminate all of the new earth, all of the new creation. It says, the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So the presence of God, which is symbolized and indicated by light, will be much greater in the new creation. We won't even need the sun because of the glory that we will be able to see by the risen and glorified Christ. So, light indicates the presence of God. But it also, secondly, symbolizes God's purity. Light, friends, pictures God's flawless perfection. God is absolute moral purity. John 1.5 says, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. John likes to do this a lot. He'll say one thing and then he sort of, to emphasize his point, he'll give the negative of it, right? So he says, God is light, and you know what? There is no darkness in God at all. There's absolutely no evil, no sin, no wickedness. In fact, as James points out in James 1.13, God is so pure that He can't even be tempted. And He can't tempt anybody else. Do you ever stop and think about that? I mean, sometimes you ever, you know, I think sometimes, what is it like to be so-and-so? Or maybe what is it like to be some type of creature, you know, an eagle? That, what would it be like to fly? Stuff like that. Your, your minds ever wander like that? Hopefully not too much right now. <laughs> so what, would, what is it like, though, to be God where you cannot sin? Where we think about ourselves and we have to battle not to sin, Right? What is it like to be God and you cannot sin at all? Not that you don't sin, but that you cannot sin. He is absolute moral perfection. And light symbolizes that. What about Jesus? Well, as I said, he became a man. And he is a man in every way but one way. And what is that way? 
He does not sin. Unlike every single person that has walked this planet, Jesus has not sinned, and He will not sin. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Remember a couple weeks ago in John 8.46, when Jesus challenged His opponents to say, which one of you convicts me of sin? They may not have agreed with everything He said, but no one could point to His life and say, there's sin. So light symbolizes Jesus' purity. So it symbolizes how Jesus differs from darkness, but light also symbolizes how Jesus defeats darkness. That leads to my third point. Light symbolizes our salvation. It doesn't take a whole lot of time to realize that we live in a very dark world, don't we? A world filled with evil, sin, and temptation. And we live in also the realization that our hearts are often drawn to these things. Our hearts are plagued with sin. And Scripture teaches that Satan blinds non-Christians from seeing the truth and to falling into the temptations that they often do and that often can lead us as well into temptation. So salvation, friends, is not going to happen on its own. God must intervene to bring light to you and I. Sometimes a saying is given that something along these lines, that salvation, finding salvation for someone apart from the grace of God is like a blindfolded blind man searching a dark room for a black cat that doesn't exist. He's just not going to find it, right? Something has to happen. And that's like with us. God's grace must intervene. We must be given light in order for salvation to occur. Do you realize that? Psalm 27 verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 36 verse 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So light symbolizes our salvation. And it was also foretold in the Old Testament that one was going to come along who would bring light, who would bring salvation to the whole earth, to Jew and Gentile. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, the Lord says to the Messiah, quote, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 49.6 says, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So light symbolizes our salvation. And it was foretold there would come this one who would bring this light to the world. Well, what about Jesus then? Well, he comes along and he claims this for himself, that he is the light of the world. And John, as he's writing this gospel, must have remembered those words because he connects it to Jesus right from the very beginning of his gospel. Remember back in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5? It said, in him, we, in him was life, and the light, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus offers eternal life, and this 
enlightens humanity. And He must do so because there is darkness, right? And that darkness is a symbol of our rebellion, our alienation from God. John 1.9 goes on to say, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So friends, Jesus is the true light. And He brings salvation for all people. Now that doesn't mean all people receive it, because John will go on to talk about how some people reject. But the opportunity, the invitation is given for anyone who would like to receive salvation. So when Jesus kind of launches off into this speech with this incredible opening statement, do you see the power with which these words were being conveyed? With all of this Old Testament background, the things that He was saying, that in essence, He is God. In essence, He is the Messiah. In essence, He is the one who is the giver of salvation. This wasn't just a nice statement to put on a magnet on our refrigerators, right? As Christians, this was a bold statement. I am the light of the world. And if that were not enough, just a little bit of background about the Feast of Tabernacles to these original hearers would have made it even more spectacular. Let me explain. In the temple complex, did we get the map up? Awesome. A plus. Thank you. In the temple complex, if you see there, I'll have to run up and try to tap it, but right, right up in there, there's a place called the Court of the Women. And it was called the Court of the Women, and where this was, this was called the Treasury as well. This is where people would come in and drop off their offerings. And this is where Jesus was, if you go down to verse 20. This is where all of this speech was taking place. It was in the court of the women. That's the whole, that is the whole complex of the temple. The very inner part is where the Holy of Holies and so forth. But people would wander all around. But in one of those courts there, on the right side, is the court of women. Now, ancient Jewish literature outside of the Bible tells us that when the Feast of Tabernacles began on that first night they would light four candelabras to kick off the festivities in the court of women. You say, well, big deal. What's so great about that? Well, these candelabras were not normal candelabras. Nobody was holding these things unless they were Samson. These things were 75 feet tall. They had four branches on each of them with bowls that could contain 10 gallons of oil. So they would ignite those bowls and it would set off this tremendous glow. People would say that you could see, in the, just take, if you would come out of this city, you could see this glow across the city or at least in the temple there that would spread of these enormous candelabras that were being lit. And it would set off a celebration on this first night. People would start singing. The, the Levites would play their instruments. The, they said the men of the city would dance through the night holding torches, which sounds really dangerous, but they were doing this stuff. And it was a great celebration. The Jews called it the illumination of the temple. And some sources indicated they did this for each of the nights of the festival. And again, you say, well, why did they light these candles? Well, they lit these candles to commemorate the time in the wilderness when the Lord led the nation 
by a lighted cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. So they remembered that momentous occasion by lighting these candelabras. Now we do not know when Jesus spoke these words if this was during the day or during the night. But either way, isn't it quite powerful to imagine in your mind this image? Jesus standing here in the court of the women in the midst of these enormous candelabras and declaring to the crowd, I am the light of the world. He is the fulfillment of this light. He is the true light. Well, that's amazing, isn't it? Given all of that Old Testament background, given all of the traditions that the Jews incorporated into celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, and then to have Jesus stand in their midst and say, I am the light of the world. It's amazing. What a moment that must have been. So what will the response be? What will the response be? Sadly, the response is what I would call the darkness of the religious leaders. The darkness of the religious leaders. Let's read verses 13 through 20, the rest of our passage. It says, So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is, not, is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So as you notice there, Jesus doesn't pick up the theme of the light of the world again in the passage, but boy, <laughs> it stirred a response. The Pharisees, these religious leaders, certainly got what Jesus was claiming there. And instead of being intrigued, they're offended, aren't they? And they seek to discredit him. They want to discredit him. Now their attack, if you notice, it doesn't focus on the claim itself, but it seeks a way to try to discredit him from the outset. And what they try to do is say, look, you can't make a claim like that without having supporting witnesses, right? And what they're doing is they're tapping into the biblical principle of having two or three witnesses to establish a claim. So what does Jesus do in response to that? Well, Jesus gives two points, I would say, in response. First of all, he points to the uniqueness of himself. He says that if he was only speaking for himself, his testimony would still be true. Because he knows things they don't know. They don't know where he's from. And they don't know where he's going, right? which is heaven. They don't know about those things. So they don't know either. And so in other words, Jesus is no mere witness. He's the eternal Son of God. He, in, in reality, He doesn't need extra witnesses because He's different. He's the eternal Son of God. 
And on the flip side of things, Jesus adds that he doesn't judge, quote, according to the flesh. Did you catch that? According to the flesh, I think that means that he doesn't judge according to fallen humanity the way we do. With our bias and our ignorance and our error and so forth. They were judging according to those things and that's why they totally missed the boat when it came to him being the Messiah because they were judging based on things that were wrong. They thought the Messiah had to be a political deliverer from Rome. They didn't get what the Scriptures taught. They were in error. As for Jesus, He does judge, but He doesn't judge according to the flesh. He judges rightly. So Jesus points to Himself and His own uniqueness, but He also points to the witness of the Father. He says that He doesn't judge alone, but the Father uh, supports Him and corroborates His witness. Jesus is always in unison with the Father. And so the Father would be that supportive second witness if indeed somehow He did need a supporting witness. And after their question about His Father, Jesus issues these sobering words. Again, you neither know Me nor My Father. If you knew Me, you would know My Father also. Wow. How sobering those words must have been to hear them come from the lips of Jesus. No one arrests him, as John points out, because his time had not come. His time will come one day on the cross, but as of yet, the time was not there. And we know that this conversation is going to continue, and it climaxes at the end of John, excuse me, of John 8:58, when Jesus says, "Before Abraham was, I am." So sadly, these religious leaders, they're not even interested. They don't want to hear his claims. They do not want the light of the world. It's a great question. I'll try to give an answer. There's something about light, isn't there? It has incredibly great properties, as we talked about. But light also shows what is really there. And sometimes that isn't pleasant, isn't it? On a practical level, on a human level, we know that light shows dirt and dust in our house, right? You ever think your house looks really good, then you pop open the window shade? Then you're like, whoa, I know what I'm doing this afternoon. Or you might think, oh man, this outfit looks great, then all of a sudden you see the light, and all of a sudden you see some tea stains and things like that. And then, of course, everybody gets humbled when you look pretty close in the mirror and the light gets in there and you start seeing blemishes and wrinkles and so forth. Light can be pretty brutal, right? And spiritually, it can be unpleasant as well because it shows sin, things that we have done in the past that we're really ashamed of. Things that we've been doing for years that we wish we'd stop, but we keep doing. Things that we've done that no one else knows about. Maybe even in this room. Maybe in our whole lives. But we know that that light is there. And friends, that's why not everyone receives light. Some will fight God tooth and nail rather than confess those things and turn from them. 
Jesus knows this. And we see an even more powerful declaration of this back in John chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, where it says, The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So Jesus exposes our hearts, doesn't He? That's part of being the light of the world. It's not just all helpful, beneficial, positive, without any sort of pain involved. There is that as well that leads to beneficial things, but there is that element of unpleasantness and discomfort. He makes us aware of our sin. And so the question is, do we pull the window shade down over our sin or do we come to the light? And that's my encouragement for us here today. Perhaps if you've never come to a true knowledge of Christ, that you realize there is darkness in your life. And that you need light. You need light. And that we all, every person, doesn't want to come to the light by ourselves, in a sense, in our own nature. Because we want to cling to that stuff. We don't want it to come out. We don't want God to clean it up and work on that stuff. But that's what must take place for salvation to occur. For us to humble ourselves. But let me give you a word of hope. God is greater than any darkness that you might have. No matter what you have done in the past, no matter what you continue to struggle with, no matter what maybe the whole world doesn't know about, God knows about it. And this word of hope shows you that God is greater than any darkness. And Jesus brings light. And He brings light that will bring healing as well. This light leads to life. Eternal life. So the question is, will you come to the light? Yes, it's humbling, but it is what leads to life. You say, well, what do I do? What would I do? Well, you confess your sin, your spiritual darkness. You acknowledge that it is wrong. It is wrong before God, and you want to turn from it permanently, not just to kind of do a quick little fix, but you realize you're going down the wrong path, and you want to walk in the light from here on. It's called repentance. And you believe that Jesus is who He's claiming to be, God in human flesh, the Messiah who died on the cross for your sins. And indeed, to overcome the darkness... Do you know that Jesus endured the darkness of God's judgment on the cross so that we could walk in the light? He took our place. It's not about what you do. It's about humbling yourself and then trusting in Jesus and then walking in the light. And no matter what you're in right now, there is hope if you turn to Christ. Because everyone who does becomes a child of light. Everyone. You don't walk into the kingdom as sort of a halfway lit bulb. Everyone comes in as a child of light, washed clean, given eternal life. 
Is that good news or what? Let me close with some application for those who have walked in the light. As disciples of Jesus, you know, we're called to emulate him. That's what a disciple is. We're supposed to become like the master, our teacher. And he is the light of the world. Well, do you know in Matthew 5.14, Jesus calls us, you know what he calls us? The light of the world. He didn't say that just about himself, but he calls us to be the light of the world. Now, our light is not like Jesus. He has inherent light, you might say. He's just light in and of itself, but he does impart light. He imparts light to us, and specifically, we are to display two characteristics already mentioned about Jesus. First, light symbolizes our purity. Now, obviously, we're not going to be entirely pure like Jesus. But we are to demonstrate a growing purity. We read in John 8, 12, remember after Jesus said, I am the light of the world? Did you catch what he went on to say there? He said, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, will have the light of life. Whoever follows Jesus, a true follower will not walk in darkness, meaning they will not have a lifestyle of darkness. Again, yes, you will sin, but once you start following Christ, you will have a newfound dislike of sin and a resolve not to sin. You will recognize darkness for what it is and want to turn from it. We will want to stay in the light because we are now united with Christ who is the light of the world. And we don't want to bring darkness to that relationship, do we? Do you see that? And that's also why it's not just Jesus, but the apostles. You ever read the apostles and the epistles? They're writing to the churches and they're always stressing your character, right? Your purity, your righteousness. 1 John 1, 6 and 7 says, If we say we have fellowship with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. Friend, let me just say something to us. Can I be very frank and forthright to everyone here today? It is high time for the church to recapture the biblical call for holiness. To be light to the world. To be light to the world. We are not doing a good job at this overall in the United States of America. Because all that you ever hear about is the church is full of hypocrites. Now, some of that is smokescreen and people wanting to you know, not deal with their own selves and wanting to push away the light. But there is an element of truth and we constantly read about it with leaders falling or scandals within churches or the church is not being the light. And I thought about this as I was preparing this sermon. Okay, well, how do we help everybody start walking in the light? You know, I thought about, well, it's important that you get into a small group and you have people in your life that you share things with. And I know in my life that's helped me to be able to confess things. And it's amazing how it dispels darkness and so forth. And 
I thought about, okay, what are the ways we can do this? But you know what? I've talked about ways here at the church. And there are so many resources you can go to online. Go to the Christian bookstore and find shelves full of books about how you can walk in victory. But I don't know that we have the heart and the will and the want to be holy. Because it's all right there. All the resources are there. It's just a question of do you want this? Do you see it as good? Is it good to walk in the light? Do you want to be in the light? Or do you want to kind of have 75% of yourself in the light and 25% in that shadow? It's a hunger and a desire to see that God's Word is true and say, I want to be in the light. Friends, the longer I walk this journey, the real the more I realize that every one of God's ways are good. And so whenever he says to do something, it is good. It's so good to be in the light. And whenever I reside in the darkness, that is when I am miserable. Ephesians 5 8 and 9, Paul commands the church, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the world. Excuse me, light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and true. 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 says, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. I don't think we need more how-tos. I think we need a heart check. To go home and say, Lord, where am I walking in darkness? Reveal those things to me and have a heart change by the power of the Holy Spirit to start walking in the light. And stop making excuses for them. And say, God understands, I'm this way, I can't change, I'll go to heaven one day and be forgiven. Stop with the excuses and start walking in the light. I know it's uncomfortable to preach to you like this when it's such a small crowd, but this is a burden on my heart that we are not walking in the light as a church. And we don't just do this for ourselves, we do it for the world. We do it for others. And that's my second point. Light symbolizes our salvation. Now, unlike Jesus, the true light We don't accomplish salvation for others, but we do demonstrate it to others, don't we? By our light. A light is meant to guide others, to help others. And it should attract others to the true light. In Matthew 5.14-16, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and gives light to all in the house. In the same way, light your light, or let your light shine before others so that you may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is another thing I would hope and pray that we would all take seriously. We know the world is filled with darkness. There's no secret in that. We all recognize that. But instead of just looking at the world and describing its evil and describing its sin and cursing the darkness, what God wants us to do is to be a light in that darkness, doesn't He? 
We're not going to fix all of the world's problems by complaining about the darkness that we see ourselves in to be preoccupied. God wants us to be a light wherever we are. And to stop minimizing the power of the light that we possess because of Christ. I love that. That image is so powerful that you could take all of the darkness of the universe and you light one match and you have light, right? One little strike of the match pushes back all of the darkness. God wants us to be salt and light. To demonstrate our purity, to exhibit this to a world that yes, there is substance to this Christian message. You can live a life that is different. You are a new man or a woman in Christ. So that the world then is attracted to that. And they want to know, what do you have that I can have too? We can't take that light and put it under something. It needs to be set out on the table so that the whole world will see it. Amen? Amen. I wanted to have a little bit of discussion after I pray. The Lord would like to... I mean, if you'd like to share something the Lord's put on your heart, any word of testimony, question, or encouragement, and let's do that after I pray. God, we thank you that you are indeed the light of the world and that you have imparted that light to us. Oh, Lord, what an image that must have been to see you, Jesus, standing in the temple declaring that you are the light of the world. And God, we thank you that you have delivered us out of the domain of darkness. We think of Colossians 1, 12 to 14. It says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for that. Help us never to forget where we came from. And Lord, we want to double our heart commitment to you today to display your light. God, we pray that we would display it by our purity and our character. We pray that you would stir in us a greater resolve to live out your word, to display godly virtues in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit to be obedient to the things that you've called us to do, declaring the praises of who you are to our world, testifying of your goodness, serving the world, and displaying these good deeds so that the world sees and is attracted. Lord, help us here at our church to be the light that you've called us to be. May it shine brighter and brighter and brighter here in this community. Not everyone may like it, but may they all know of it. And may many of them come to you as a result of us being the salt and the light of the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.